This is episode 254 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Brendan Ballou and Plunder, his book about private equity. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Brandon Ballou is with us. And uh, first, I have to say, uh, welcome to the show, Brandon. Well, thank you so much for having me. And also, what a great name you have. I'm old enough to remember the movie Cat Ballou. And so when I saw your name, Brandon Ballou, it was like, wow, that's a great name. So yeah. (laughs) And then also congratulations on the name of your book, Plunder, which we're going to talk about today. It really is an apt title for the book. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah, so I just have to clarify, it's not Brandon Ballou, uh, who I ran across when I was Googling you. Uh, Brandon Ballou is a martial arts expert. And although there are some parallels, uh, we're actually talking to Brendan Ballou. <laughs> I'll start with a short bio. He's a federal prosecutor and served as special counsel for private equity in the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. Previously, he worked in private practice and in the National Security Division of the Justice Department, where he advised the White House on counterterrorism and other policies. He graduated from Columbia University and Stanford Law School. And just a little safe harbor for us here, the views expressed in this podcast and in his book do not necessarily represent those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Well, thank you for getting that little disclaimer out ahead before even I could get to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. We just want to be careful not to get on the wrong side of the Justice Department. (laughs) So yeah, first, I just want to say this to my listeners. Uh, The book is titled Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. Like a lot of the public affairs books, and I've uh, talked to a number of authors whose books were published by public affairs this one also conforms to uh, the tradition of great books. It's a really good book. I highly recommend it. And congratulations, uh, Brandon, for writing it. Well, thank you again. Yeah, it's really readable. It looks like a lot of the public affairs books where it's fairly hefty, but actually a lot of it is notes and an index. And it's very readable. It's um, written in a style that you know, anybody could pick up and read. And I do think this topic is quite significant for Americans today. So I recommend the book. And I want to start with something that I think is really typical of other issues that you cover in this book. And that is we can just look at the results of things. So I'm going to bore you here for a second by starting with a list. And this list is of companies 
that were all taken over by private equity firms and subsequently went bankrupt. All right, so bear with me here for a minute. J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, Toys R Us, Sears, 24-Hour Fitness, Aeropostale, American Apparel, Brookstone, Charlotte Russe, Claire's, David's Bridal, Deadspin, Fairway, Gymboree, Hertz, KB Toys, Linens and Things, Mervyn's, Mattress Firm, Musicland, Nine West, Payless Shoe Source, Radio Shack, Shopco, Sports Authority, Rockport, True Religion, Wix Furniture. Okay, and let's address one thing right up front, because when I went through this list, I was thinking in the back of my mind, well, that's all Amazon's fault. Uh, but listen up, I think after you hear more from Brendan, uh, you'll think, uh, as I ended up thinking, that what Amazon does seems pretty benign in comparison to the forces that took down those companies. So Brendan, tell us what are the business practices that result in this kind of disastrous uh, bankruptcy record? Well, it's a great question. And it might be helpful to just set a baseline of what private equity firms even are, um, which is something that I confess I did not know the answer to until I was many months into this project. Um, private equity firms, um, the basic business model is very simple. They use a little bit of their own money, uh, some investor money, and a whole lot of borrowed money to buy up companies. They then try to make financial or operational changes with the aim of selling it for a profit a few years later, which is a very straightforward, simple business model. But for a couple of reasons really baked into our laws and our regulations, this often has disastrous consequences. And you listed a lot of those consequences just now. For one thing, private equity firms tend to invest or hold the companies for just a few years, you know, two, three, five, seven years. And that changes your perspective on the company you own. I always joke, you know, if I was trying to maximize the value of my apartment over 20 years, I'd redo the kitchen. If I was trying to maximize the value over two days, I'd burn it down and try to collect the insurance money. You know, how long you own something changes your perspective here. Um, so that's the first problem. The second one is that private equity firms tend to load the companies they own up with a lot of debt and extract a lot of fees. So, you know, I just mentioned that private equity firms tend to use a lot of debt to buy up businesses. The, the odd thing is, is that it's the companies they buy, not the private equity firms that are responsible for paying off that debt. It's a little bit like getting to use somebody else's credit card. At the same time, these firms are able to extract a lot of money from the companies they buy, transaction fees, which are fees that the business pays every time they do a big deal or management fees, which are fees they pay every quarter or every year for the privilege of being owned by the private equity firm. So, you know, they're loading the companies up, extracting a lot of money from them. And then the final thing is that private equity firms are able to insulate themselves from liability for the actions of their portfolio companies. So if something goes wrong at a business they buy, either because of what the private equity firm said or not, it's very, very hard to hold the private equity firm responsible. And so you have this situation where private equity firms are incentivized to extract a lot of money very quickly. And yet if things go poorly, they won't necessarily have to pay the consequences. And I think that leads to a lot of the outcomes that you just mentioned. 
Yeah, it's really the sort of this triumvirate combination of factors that's really laid out very well in your book. I'm going to leap ahead a little bit uh, to some things that you talked about first in the beginning and then uh, mostly later in the book. I always think it's interesting when we're faced with something like this that just seems overwhelming uh, to look at history, which you do in the book, and you point out some other dark moments like the lost years in Japan or the rise of Nazism in Germany, but especially to a dark moment in the U.S., when the money trusts of the so-called gilded years in the early 20th century, when financiers like George F. Baker and J.P. Morgan ran the railroads, the banks, the steel mills, the shipping, insurance companies. Uh, We don't remember that period, but we've certainly read about it. Although there might be some differences in scale. So Baker, uh, who was supposedly twice as rich as Morgan, which I didn't know, was worth uh, $1.4 billion in today's money. And now Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone, who the company, private equity company that we'll talk more about today, is worth nearly 20 times that. One of the things you mentioned is this kind of wealth accumulation is really due to the availability of money. And you say in your book, in quotes, this is largely the decision of government. Uh, So very interesting perspective. And so tell me what you mean by that. Well, maybe I can break it up into two parts. One is sort of how does this parallel that earlier historical period? And then how does private equity benefit from or shape government policy? Um, So in the first part, I think you really laid it out very nicely, which is in a lot of ways, our private equity executives today really resemble the leaders of the great trusts of the late 19th and early 20th century, the steel, tobacco, uh, sugar, and and money trusts. Um, The difference really is just one of scale, that the folks that are running private equity firms are vastly wealthier than the folks that run um, investment banks today and vastly wealthier, certainly, than the people that ran the trusts a century ago. In some ways, the trust model is legally very similar to the private equity one in that it is centralized financial institutions essentially having operational control over disparate businesses and with limited liability throughout. And so in a lot of ways, private equity firms are just a recreation of the trusts. Mm. And so that spills out not just into you know, our business, but also, as I think you were alluding, uh, into our politics as well. Private equity firms, I think, have an almost unrivaled ability to get their agenda passed through sort of all of our different levers of government, state and federal. Private equity firms have spent some something like $900 million on federal elected officials and candidates over the past 30 years. They've hired an enormously deep bench of former government officials, including I believe our last three treasury secretaries, um, secretaries of defense, state, former generals, former CIA directors, former chair people of the SEC and FCC. And so it's just a very deep bench of people that are working on their behalf. And so what to get back to your original question, what I think this means is that private equity firms aren't necessarily succeeding just because they're good at business. In fact, I think oftentimes they're sort of rather bad at business. But they are succeeding because they are able to shape the laws and benefit the law, benefit from the laws uh, in ways that very few other people are able to. 
Let's dive into the weeds here a little bit. So uh, listeners, bear with us. We're going to get a little technical here, but but I promise there's a there's a payoff for it, just like uh, private equity. So let's talk about money because, you know, you start asking yourself where, you know, where does this kind of not just the wealth come from, which we were just talking about, but where does the funding come from to do this, to buy up? whole companies, right? Not just invest in them, but take them over so entirely that you control really all of their operations. And then I want to also ask you about why companies would agree to those transactions and and to the extent that there are loans that are being made, you know, why would people loan in these uh, sort of into these sort of structures? Uh, so yeah, tell us about the money. <laughs> it's a great question. So the first part is, you know, where do they get their initial money to invest in? So I think I mentioned sort of alluded at the outset that they need money to buy up businesses. Some of it they have themselves, but a lot of it comes from other investors. Now, who are those investors? In some ways, there's a good chance that it's you. If you work for local government and are uh, participating in a pension fund, you know, a teacher's retirement fund, a fire, fire people's retirement fund and so forth. Um, those funds very often uh, invest a substantial part of their money in private equity firms. University endowments do the same. So do what are called sovereign wealth funds, which are the funds for foreign countries. So that's where a lot of this money comes from. One of the interesting things that I've been seeing is as private equity firms tap out on a lot of these resources, because there's only so many pension funds to go go around, they're also looking at new sources of money. This includes insurance companies. So buying up life insurance companies and using the money that's coming in every month or every quarter through premiums and using that for their own investments and their own projects, which raises a whole host of interesting challenges, as well as 401ks. So historically, 401k fund managers, you know, Vanguard or Fidelity or whatever. I'm I'm just making up the, these as hypotheticals. Historically, have not invested in private equity. Due to some regulatory changes over the past few years, that may be changing, and private equity firms are trying to get access to that money as well. So, to get to the second part of your question, so who's loaning them money? That's a great question. So, you know, I mentioned that private equity firms buy up businesses a little bit with their own money but also with investor money and then a whole lot of borrowed money. Oftentimes, this is coming from investment banks that are willing to invest in the deal. Interestingly, private equity firms are actually getting in on this business model themselves. They've got a lot of money to play with and so have been getting more involved in what's called the private credit market, which is loans to businesses outside of the traditional public stock markets for various reasons, almost sort of by definition. These private credit markets are vastly less regulated than the public ones. And there's really interesting concerns sort of within the business community about whether this lack of transparency, lack of regulation may be leading to a kind of bubble that we saw, maybe not on the same scale as the housing market in 2008, but a sort of similar set of problems. So that's something that we're going to see over the next few years play out. Yeah. So I think, you know, as my listeners are processing this, they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, if all these companies are going bankrupt, you know, eventually they might run out of funds. Why would this persist, right? Why would this go on? If the model is untenable, how can this happen? 
you know, again, your book just does such a great job at, at explaining how you can get very lucrative returns in the short term, although the long term viability of the business is severely damaged. So again, just getting in the weeds a little bit more, tell us about the mechanisms that are used to achieve great early returns uh, at great expense later on. Sure. So maybe one of the most famous is what's called a sale leaseback, where the private equity firm will require the portfolio company to sell its assets, um, you know, the real estate that it owned, and then lease it back to itself. And that creates a quick hit of cash for the company, a portion of which the private equity firm will probably collect through what we mentioned earlier, these transaction fees. So it creates a quick hit of cash, but now you are on the hook for pain every month or every quarter for something that you used to own. I saw this play out personally with the business uh, Shopco, which is a Midwest retailer, sort of like a little higher end than Walmart, but a little lower end than Target. It was sort of in the sweet spot. It was a really great business, but it was bought by a private equity firm, Sun Capital, which ultimately executed a, a sale leaseback and um, slashed employment. They ultimately pushed the company into bankruptcy, but at the same time, they were able to get a quick hit of cash through that transaction fee. There are other tactics. In fact, if I can stay on Sun Capital for a moment, one of the stories that's really stuck with me is uh, Friendly's Diner, um, which is a chain in the Northeast. In 2007, Sun Capital bought up the diner chain, executed a number of fairly familiar tactics, cut employment and so forth, and then pushed the company into bankruptcy. But the interesting thing about the bankruptcy was Sun Capital owned Friendly's, the diner chain, but it was also Friendly's largest lender, uh, which is sort of interesting because in bankruptcy, you know, sort of the roles between sort of the owner and the lender sort of flip like an hourglass. By being both the owner and the largest lender, Sun Capital was able to sell Friendly's from itself to itself, which is this sort of legal magic trick. And in doing so, it was able to push off the obligations that it used to have to pension holders, retirees and employees onto what's called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is this quasi-governmental agency. And so that's an example where even when companies are getting pushed into bankruptcy, sometimes it actually works out for the private equity firm. It's actually the plan. Yeah, I think that's right. Something you explained very well and also helps explain why we have that huge long list of bankrupt companies that I listed at the beginning is how these mechanisms are being used so that bankruptcy is actually beneficial, right? Uh, the one that gives me the creeps is, if I can use that term on uh, the day after Halloween, is this idea of taking the assets, especially that brick and mortar stores have, their stores or the land that they have, and forcing them to sell that. It, there's something... To me, I guess I'm kind of old school that's sort of heartbreaking about that, that you harvest those assets and then uh, load the company up with a financial obligation, as well as, you know, just taking any cash that they have on the balance sheet. But that just seems so sad to me to to really harvest from a company like that. It, 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 there's something, yeah, that just rubs me the wrong way. It's like taking organs from from someone <laughs> or something. Yeah. And I guess plunder, again, is the right word for that. Yeah, it's interesting to hear stories, for instance, when three private equity firms bought up Toys R Us and executed a lot of these tactics and how 
as alleged, the quality of the stories sort of declined as they invested less in even just taking care of the stories, janitorial work and how dust would accumulate on the on the toys in a way that it didn't used to. Ultimately, obviously, Toys R Us was forced into bankruptcy under very similar circumstances. And yet the private equity firms made their money back. Um, so it's a situation where the firms can often win, even if the businesses, even if the consumers, even if the employees lose. Definitely. Yeah, it's it really is an extraction process. Uh, as you've mentioned several times in the book, it's not wealth creation, it's wealth extraction. And this isn't the most important issue. I always feel a little bit uh, petty when I complain about CEO pay, but I have had several podcasts about that, about how CEOs arrange for themselves to be paid an enormous salary, even in years when uh, there have been significant layoffs and the companies have underachieved. But when you're talking about private equity, you actually move into a completely different league, which I didn't realize. So I always pick on Jamie Dimon because he makes so much money, the CEO of JP Morgan. And in your book, you report that he made $80 million in 2021. But Schwartzman, again, the guy we talked about from Blackstone uh, that year, made a billion dollars as uh, his income. And I think in a way, it's a testament to the lack of visibility um, and oversight and awareness of private equity that that kind of thing can go on. And we don't, people like me, don't necessarily uh, know about it. In fact, you also report that since 2005, nearly 24 private equity executives have become multi-billionaires. So again, you know, it's just interesting to look at the results of this, right? I, I think we could all pick and argue about why some of these things happen, but it's hard to argue with the consequences of them. Yeah, it's interesting. I think so much of the popular discourse on CEO pay, especially in the financial world, focuses on the investment banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and so forth. Uh, the interesting thing is after the Great Recession, all those banks converted into what are called bank holding companies, which are regulated by the Federal Reserve, have higher capital requirements, more restrictions. They sort of became less innovative businesses in a sense for better or often for worse. And so a lot of the sort of financial innovation and activity shifted to the private equity firms. I remember there's this analyst statement that says something along the lines of Blackstone reminds me of Goldman Sachs 10 years ago, wherever something interesting is happening, that's where they are. And so as the sort of innovation has shifted to private equity firms, uh, so is the money. You know, you mentioned that um, Stephen Schwartzman has paid, you know, a good 10 times as much as Jamie Dimon. I think that, uh, you know, the wealth creation for the private equity executives has been pretty extraordinary in that several of these executives have net worths that that rival the GDP of small countries. You know, you're talking six, eight, ten. You know, in Schwartzman's case, I believe now north of $30 billion in, in assets. So pretty incredible accomplishments for them. So let's go back to uh, government involvement in this. And I have to say, this was the one of the most startling things that I discovered in your book. And again, partly because I didn't know anything about it is the, I'll describe it up as sort of the packaging up of foreclosed homes by Fannie Mae after the housing bust of 2008 and how Fannie Mae participated in the facilitation of the purchase of these packages of homes uh, by private equity. 
Um, so yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, it was really interesting. So during the Great Recession, millions of people's mortgages were underwater in that they were paying more every month on a mortgage that cost more than their house was worth. And so to keep people in their homes, really the economically rational thing for everybody involved, not just the homeowners, but for the lenders uh, as well, would have been to either temporarily pause payments or lower the principal on people's mortgages because it would make it rational for people to stay in their houses for those who have jobs and make it affordable for people to stay in their homes for those who don't until house prices stabilize. The head of the FHFA, which regulates both Fannie and Freddie, was adamantly, sort of fanatically opposed to this project, even though, again, it would have benefited not just homeowners, but lenders as well. And so, you know, the consequences are, you know, written in our history now. Millions of people lost their homes in concentrated neighborhoods in Nevada and Arizona, Florida, California, all across the country. But at the same time as the FHFA was refusing to help homeowners in this way, they were being tremendously solicitous of private equity firms, in particular, as you mentioned, by trying to sell these homes in large tracts to investors. And by selling homes by the dozens or hundreds, it meant that only large investment firms could buy them up, not individuals. And that's exactly what happened, whether it was Blackstone or Colony, Waypoint, many others. The result of which is that these firms converted these homes from houses that people would own into single-family rentals. And so you have whole neighborhoods where it's the same people living in the neighborhood, but now they rent rather than own. You know, home ownership rates, I believe, are back down to what they were in the 1990s or 1980s. I saw one commentator say that home ownership for African-American families is back down to what it was during the civil rights movement. So you really have a transformation of home ownership happening in America. And it happened not just because of private equity, but because of sort of what our government and our affiliate the government's affiliates like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the decisions they made in sort of who to support in these times of crisis. Yeah. And I think you also mentioned that they helped facilitate the funding to purchase those homes. So it's really a, you know, a, uh, a collaboration, a partnership. I believe it was Fannie that ultimately uh, securitized, I believe it was several hundred million dollar loan that Blackstone wanted to buy up some of these homes. So it was support in a lot of different directions. So I have a friend, uh, so this goes out to her, this question, and she is interested in these types of issues about housing. Uh, she's a professor of architecture and she's been researching Blackstone buying up apartment complexes in small towns around San Diego here in California. Again, you report some pretty astonishing facts about that. So you report that in 2011, no single landlord owned more than a thousand single family rentals. But by 2013, Blackstone bought more than that just in one day and became, through one of their subsidiaries, which they often have many subsidiaries doing different things, the largest renter of single-family homes. So between 2006 and 2017, 5.4 million single-family homes changed from owner-occupied to being rentals, which is really, a, you know, that's a pretty tremendous uh, transformation. Yeah. So I don't really have a question for that, except, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good expression. Yeah. I think in those sort of fever days 
sort of coming out of the Great Recession, the activity in buying up homes was just extraordinary. I remember the Wall Street Journal was doing a profile of some of these purchases where in one county, they literally had auctions on the outdoors, on the lawn, on the steps of the county courthouse to sort of crowds of investors. And at least one private equity firm literally just brought a briefcase of traveler's checks in order to buy up these properties. So it was a really frantic time for private equity firms, but I think it worked out astoundingly well. I mean, this is, I, be, I believe this extends only to commercial property, not residential property, but it, it at least gives you a sense of scale. I believe that Blackstone is now the largest commercial real estate holder in the United States. So pretty extraordinary accomplishment. Again, it it sort of gives you the creeps, you know, when I go around with my friend and we visit a small town and she goes from, you know, street to street and says, you know, this is Blackstone, that's Blackstone, that's Blackstone. I mean, it's, it's often disguised by a name on the sign, but ultimately if you dig down, it's still Blackstone. And so the ability to, to buy up all of those apartment complexes and then control the rent in an entire city, it, it's just remarkable, you know, and it really does give you sort of a a feeling of foreboding about what this kind of control means, this kind of uh, monopoly means. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the areas that private equity is focused on, they don't seem very prestigious, right? So here I was talking there about apartment complexes and then retail. We named out a lot of the sort of middle tier stores, uh, mobile home parks, and then a lot of prison services and then uh, ambulance services as well. All kinds of strange, disparate uh, places where they are taking over companies. Yet, I guess, there's sort of an obvious, although somewhat distasteful strategy behind that. And so tell us what it is. Yeah. You know, it was interesting when I started out on the project, I sort of assumed that private equity firms would target businesses that focus on servicing the rich, you know, because if you're in the business of making money, you go where the money is. But to my surprise, I found that private equity firms often targeted businesses that went after uh, the working class or very poor people. And whether you're talking about prison services, mobile homes, for-profit colleges, these are industries where consumers really don't have another option. And so there are areas where it's really possible to raise prices or lower the quality of care essentially without consequence because the people you're serving really can't go anywhere else. And so I was surprised to see that private equity firms were investing so much energy in, for instance, mobile home parks, because I didn't think that that was going to be a big moneymaker. But certainly the private equity firms think they are. Yeah, this idea of captive audience, right? I mean, literally in the case of prisons, uh, but also, you know, when, when you talk about people's homes, it is very hard for people to move. They've got an attachment to the neighborhoods, the kids like the schools. And so, you know, that's a force that just keeps people there. And there are other uh, industries, you mentioned insurance, and that's one that I have also another terrible foreboding feeling about. There's always cash coming in from the premiums, but the level of payout is somewhat at the discretion of the company and their reputation and whether or not they care about serving their clients well. Yeah, the fact that there's a 
someone sitting around calculating what uh, how they can extract money from captive audiences is again a, a, a chilling uh, feeling that you get from that. Yeah, the the insurance story is interesting because firms have bought up these uh, insurance companies and then are as has been described in the trade press shifting the assets to offshore affiliates in Bermuda that have lower capital requirements. And so what that means is that the private equity firm essentially has more money to play with, you know, more money that people are sending every month, but there's less of a cushion if things go badly. And the interesting thing is if indeed things go badly, there'll be a lot of litigation over it. But at least one thing that might happen is that the private equity firms may or may not be responsible for paying policyholders when the company goes under. Rather, what are called state guarantee corporations, which are corporations essentially insurers for insurers paid by other more responsible companies, may be responsible for paying out on these policies. And so what that means is you have a situation where these private equity firms are buying up these insurance companies and they get all the upside if things go well, but at least potentially if things go poorly, they won't have to do anything. Yeah, which is a a repeat of the strategy that you mentioned before of somehow offloading the risk onto the government or some other government-related agency and, and um, often funded by taxpayers, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm, yeah. So speaking of power, focusing on people who don't have very much power, uh, when it comes to private equity, they do have tremendous lobbying power. You know, I think, again, we can argue about antitrust laws and whether or not they're effective and how they should be legislated. But again, to me, the compelling argument about this is just the results. So somehow we've arrived at the future, uh, which is a case where we have four leading airlines three cell phone companies, and essentially two drugstores in the United States. And and I could go on about this as banks are consolidating and uh, so many of the areas that we think we're diversified in. In fact, all roads lead back to just a few places. I've been amused to not amused, but I've been noticing how many credit card advertisements there are now uh, during the World Series. And essentially, all of those credit cards are really from Chase. I've also, a slight digression here, I've been um, renewing my love of John Steinbeck. And so I was reading Travels with Charlie again, which is John Steinbeck's book about traveling across the United States. I think he did this in 1960. But even at that time, he said, you know, the way the highway system is being developed, and the commercialization along those highways means that at some point in the future, you can travel from California to New York and essentially see nothing because everything is the same. And that, you know, I notice this a lot when I travel that as you pass by all of those freeway malls, it's really the same 20 stores over and over and over. In fact, now there are fewer of them because so many of them have gone bankrupt. And we see this in a lot of areas. You know, you mentioned in the book in 1996, the U- U.S. Stock Exchange had 7,400 companies and by 2018, less than half. 
I think we don't always realize this. And investors, you know, I joke about the S&P 500 is really now the S&P 50 because it's really the fortunes of those companies that are driving that index. But it, I joke about it, but it's actually not very funny. We don't really have time to go into that too much uh, here, but in the book, you do talk about the risks of that, as you've mentioned earlier, this concentration and what happens then when there's an implosion there. I don't know if you want to make a comment about that. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you on, you, we've seen tremendous concentration across all sorts of industries. And I have to be a little bit more circumspect here because, you know, my home office is the antitrust division of the Justice Department. Um, but I can I can say in, in generalities, private equity firms have played a role here in terms of engaging in what are called roll-ups. So this is buying up often small, disparate businesses and combining them into a single larger one. So we've seen roll-ups of just about any industry, but you know, in I'll just take one sector, for instance, in healthcare, you see roll-ups of radiology clinics, ophthalmology, urgent care, OBGYN clinics, whole hospital chains. You know, you see roll-ups happening in the retail, veterinary, dental industries. And what this means is potentially, you know, there's some efficiencies of scale in that, you know, they can buy things in bulk and, you know, lower the lower their costs, but oftentimes potentially you also see things that harm consumers and employees, whether it's increased costs or decreasing quality of care or more pressures and lower pay for people that work in these places. So it's a challenge for our antitrust laws. The challenge that we've got is that really our antitrust laws have been interpreted incredibly narrowly over the past 40 or 50 years, really beginning with sort of a revolution led by Robert Bork that have made it much, much harder to bring certain kinds of antitrust cases. And so, you know, I think private equity firms have really benefited from that change in the law and it's helped contribute to, you know, that changing scenery across our, our highways that you alluded to. Yeah. And I think what's interesting as I was reading your book, I kept thinking about this. I don't think people necessarily know all the details behind it. Like what has led to this, right? Like why don't we have sports authority anymore or, or other stores, you know, that, that people truly loved, you know, and, and thought were, were good quality stores and that they would last. And they don't understand why all these things are happening, but they see it right? They see the decline in services. So they see, oh, you know, PetSmart used to be really good and now it's kind of crappy. Or, you know, they just have other observations. And so they have a sense of decline and of things that are, you know, not going well. And so I see a lot of references to things like that in social media or, or people just talking. And the one thing that I hear a lot from my clients I work with clients a lot of times on career issues and, and job issues is this idea of somehow they're being asked to do more that they're not sure about why this has happened, but they find as they look around after they've worked in a company for 20 years, now they're actually kind of doing the job of two or three or four people. And so I think people are aware of this. They may just not know quite how this has happened. They they see the results, but they don't necessarily understand what has contributed to having us arrive at this at this moment in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I hear complaints from friends who talk about, 
you know, the business that they used to love seems to be getting worse. Or, you know, I've talked to doctors who are talking about how much more difficult uh, their work has become, and they've got sort of almost crushing workloads that have been assigned to them so that they meet certain production quotas. And you can't lay the blame for that entirely on private equity, but oftentimes private equity contributes to it. I always say, you know, if you see a business that seems to be going downhill, you know, it seems like the quality is getting worse, the prices are going up, Google the company name in private equity, see if they were involved. Oftentimes it's the case. And so I think it's important for people to understand that this is going on, but also understand that, and this is something that Zephyr Teachout, who's a professor over at Fordham, has made a good point about sort of generally in talking about big business, is that ethical consumerism isn't necessarily going to sort of solve the problem here. You know, you can't sort of choose not to shop at private equity owned businesses because they're ubiquitous. It's almost kind of the point. And so there need to be sort of other levers of power to be pulled in order to have real change here. Yeah. So I'll do uh, one more thing to infuriate our listeners, um, and then we can talk about maybe some some more hopeful things about things we can do for the future. But another astonishing thing that you talked about in the book, again, because I didn't know anything about it, was how private equity benefited from the pandemic. Uh, so can you uh, tell us a few of the ways that they profited? Yeah, you know, there were a number of loan programs that were set up through HHS that private equity firms were able to take advantage of and get hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, in low interest loans to finance hospital operations and medical operations. Yet at the same time, these folks were sitting on tens of billions, perhaps even hundreds of billions of dollars in what's called dry powder, essentially money that they hold but haven't invested yet. So this was money that was essentially you know, handed to them by the government that they didn't need. There were other sort of various government loan and grant programs that private equity firms were able to, to benefit from. One thing that sort of sticks in my mind, though, is that private equity firms got extremely active in the nursing home business. And it's an area where you're getting regular cash from Medicare or Medicaid. And again, it's sort of a it's, it's an area where you can often cut the quality of care without people moving. This is a situation where private equity owned firms and a whole bunch of other folks within the industry were able to successfully lobby for what were called COVID liability shields, saying that the nursing homes couldn't be held responsible for deaths in the facilities because of COVID. And sometimes those liability shields extended even further, saying essentially, except in the most extreme cases, nursing homes couldn't be held responsible for deaths there at all. And so these are liability shields that sort of began during COVID, but their protections extended far beyond them. Mm -hmm. And nursing homes in general, and the private equity owners of those nursing, of many of those nursing homes in particular, benefited from those changes. Yeah. And again, just talking of results, you report in the book that after those pandemic loans were made to so many of these private equity firms, they really ramped up their leverage buyouts. And so you said 10 of those private equity firms that got funds did 230 leverage buyouts in just nine months after that. You know, it's a huge infusion of cash that then they just used to put their previous strategy on steroids to keep executing on their plan. Yeah, no, the, the availability of very cheap money during the pandemic or during quarantine 
really made it possible for firms to buy up uh, just huge swaths of the economy. After, I believe in 2021, private equity firms spent over a trillion dollars buying up companies. The entire US GDP is about $25 trillion, which is not an entirely apples to apples comparison, but it at least gives you a sense of scale for what these companies were buying. You know, it has a compounding effect too. So you uh, mentioned in the book that businesses that were owned by Apollo, Blackstone, Carlisle, and KKR got $1.8 billion in this cheap money and these loans. But then that gets uh, compounded so that the firms actually took out of that $5.4 billion in fees. So, you know, this this whole thing, it just feels really rigged. I don't know if there's another <laughs> word for it, but it feels rigged. Uh, well, it's certainly a system that has been working to the benefit of private equity firms, almost uh, almost without exception. Okay. So I've talked to other people about capitalism. Um, I've always been a fan of capitalism, but the way we're doing it today in this country makes me have very severe second thoughts about it. And one of the things that you do is just describe what we're seeing. And you said that private equity, I'm going to quote your book at you, sorry here. Private mm -hmm. equity firms do not offer simply an extreme version of capitalism, but rather something much darker, a twining of big business and big government that finds profits by creating and exploiting legal gaps and obscure government programs. And over my career, I've certainly learned how clever people can be when there is money at stake and also ruthless when there's a lot of money to be had by professionally trained money people, the MBA people, lawyers, and so forth. And they can be pretty scary. So is there any hope? I certainly think that there's hope here. I don't say that just to be blindly optimistic, but because I've seen positive changes here. I think when activists have really focused on specific industries, for instance, the prison phone industry, uh, activists have been enormously successful at capping um, the cost for making those phones. That's an industry where private equity has been extremely active. Or the nursing home industry, activists have really been successful at pushing federal rulemaking to establish minimum staffing criteria. All of which is to say that I actually think that there has been progress on a lot of these issues and that activists have been really passionate and not just a passionate, but effective in making change on these issues. But the challenge that we've got is private equity firms are ubiquitous, oftentimes talking about them at a high level, frankly, it's a little dull. You know, you talk about the carried interest loophole and management fee waivers and stuff like that, people's eyes glaze over. But it can be kind of hard to sort of focus your energy on specific things. But when people have done that, I think that there's been real progress. And I'll add just one last point on this. Oftentimes, people look to Congress for solutions on these issues, and it's important to think about that as a solution here. But there's a whole lot that can be done at the federal level by regulators, whether you're talking about the SEC or Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or at the state level, when you're talking about state attorneys general or state legislatures, there's a whole lot that can be done. All we need is sort of the energy and the focus to do it. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned in the book, which which touched me, was that when activists rise up and point things out, it's encouraging to the to the people who are working inside of those agencies to feel as though it's not hopeless. That for you personally, for example, 
uh, that you were bolstered psychologically by seeing people object to things that you thought were also unfair. So I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, you know, I for for folks that want to get the specific details of that story, I, I'd recommend to them just the last chapter of the book. I won't get into the details, but I'll, I'll I will say at a high level. You know, I think most people in government are trying to do the right thing most of the time. Sometimes it's just a matter of educating people, helping them to understand what's going on, what the consequences of this obscure regulatory or legislative change might be. Sometimes it's just a matter of education and people really will do the right thing. And then sometimes it's a matter of giving people internally the strength to do the right thing. I'll say, you know, I've been in a lot of meetings and knowing, you know, whether it's protesters outside or people writing or people tweeting or just expressing their concern or their outrage really empowers people. It gives people psychological strength to argue for the right thing, even when when they're in the room at the, at the time, they may feel like they're the only one. But knowing that there's a lot of folks on the outside that really agree and want them to do the right thing can be tremendously important. So I just say that, you know, for folks that... So I kind of feel a little hopeless on some of this stuff. Know that your expressions, your statements, your work, your protests, uh, your engagement, even if you don't see it right away, can make a real difference here. Uh, and we appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's really, it's really great to point that out to people that, you know, that people on the inside are listening. And then also the another thing that you point out in the book is all the actions that were taken after the money trusts of the so-called uh, gilded years and the things that were changed because of that. And really that part of the book is quite inspiring. You know, it's always interesting to look at history and see how things change. But so many things happened after that era, really for the better of the everyday American. Yeah, no, it was, it was really inspiring. The the populist and then the progressive movements really transformed the country for the better, whether it was creating sort of our modern antitrust laws or the federal, uh, the FTC, uh, graduated income tax, our first federal environmental laws, suffrage for women, uh, our first, you know, substantial federal labor laws. It was a time of extraordinary transformation and progress. And it can happen again. It's not guaranteed, but we at least have a roadmap to know that it's happened once before. Yeah, exactly. Which I, yeah, I think that that's a, a really powerful argument for what's possible is it's happened before. Well, Brendan, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and talking to us about your great book, uh, which is called Plunder, Private Equities Plan to Pillage America. And before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, just that uh, the book is available on just about any platform that interests you, whether you know you get your stuff on Amazon or want to go out, go to a different platform. Google the title or go to plunderthebook.com uh, and pick up a copy. But thank you so much for having me and um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, it was really great to have you. It was wonderful to learn more about this topic. And I think our listeners will really appreciate this podcast and also the book. So thank you very much for writing it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. 
and give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.